stories of ambition, drive, success, and the personalities behind them. I'm Whitney Coonan. And I'm Macy McLean. And you're listening to Power in Heels. Right now, more than ever, and I mean, it will continue to be like this, but, you know, mental health and talking about what's going on in our minds is something that's really important that people don't do enough. And the stigma is getting a little better, so people are doing it more, but I think talking about it helps. And, you know, I've always wondered what types of therapy there were out there and all these different things. You know, nobody tells you this. You don't know this. No, I totally agree. And just, I feel like it almost can kind of feel daunting or overwhelming when you think of therapy and like all the different paths and ways to go about it. So I, I as well, am excited to kind of learn more about what's involved. You started your career as a nurse and then at one point eventually decided to get your PhD in clinical psychology. So I'm just curious to know what made you decide to make that jump into the world of mental health. So as a registered nurse, I also worked in mental health. I did work uh, in psychiatry then on inpatient units and I found mental health endlessly fascinating and I still do. As a registered nurse, I was able to do some of the work on an inpatient unit. Um, You know, it was often about monitoring medications and side effects, and, you know, we often just didn't have as much time to do therapy as we might have liked. But as a clinical psychologist, I was really able to have more autonomy and to do even more. And so for me, it felt like kind of a natural extension And I always loved nursing, and I loved mental health nursing. So for three years, I was doing both. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow, oh my gosh. You, you know, you worked at the CAMH, and then you um, decided to open up your own practice, and you've been talking a lot about your own practice. Can you just explain your thought process behind, you know, the drive to open up your own practice? Yeah, so um, when I was working at uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, I mean, we had really long waiting lists, and, you know, the, the reality is there was a lot of pressure, um, you know, to see more and more clients. And we moved to doing group therapy exclusively so that we could try and get as many people into therapy as possible. We weren't doing almost any individual work anymore. We simply just couldn't, you know, couldn't keep up that way. So I decided at the time and spoke to a colleague and opened a private practice in downtown. And uh, we didn't know how that would work, Um, but it became, you know, it just grew year over year. It just grew very quickly in terms of people really, really needed other resources to be able to access. So we built a team uh, where we tried really hard to provide access. So we had, you know, top-notch psychologists working in the area of eating disorders, psychosis, bipolar disorder, depression anxiety, ADHD, you know, we really kept building a team that had more and more and more skills. And we just had to keep hiring more and more psychologists, which we did, and grew to a very large practice. Um, And it was really kind of a a dream come true. It was amazing to work with, uh, with those people for all those years and to provide all of that service and for people to be really committed. It was a group of people whose priorities were about providing the best quality care to as many people as possible. I honestly don't know how a session starts or what is it like? What does it mean? Like, I don't know these things, right? So 
if we could role play and like hypothetically Macy and I were sitting down for a session with you, um, how the first time ever, how you would start. So as a psychologist, the goal is really to help people to feel really comfortable, to acknowledge that it's difficult, you know, often difficult to, uh, to come in and start that process. But also our goal is to instill a little bit of hope for people early on that people do get better. Um, we really have to deal with some of the formalities in the first session. So we, you know, have to fill in information and, and then we really need to proceed by doing an assessment. So the first meeting is really us asking a lot of questions. So it's okay for the person to sort of relax and settle in and just answer as openly and honestly as they can. I thought that might might be really intimidating and scary to like jump into a session and be absolutely badgered with questions. But then you ended your sentence there saying, you know, they can relax. And I was like, you know what? That actually makes more sense because I, I can't imagine just walking into a room, sitting down with a stranger and pouring my heart out, telling them about everything that I'm concerned about like that. That actually is worse. So it does make sense that you start, you know, with just a bunch of questions and building a baseline. Cause then once again, a client could, you know, build up a comfort level with the with therapist or whoever they're chatting with first. And a lot of people don't, right? So they understand when, you know, when they're coming in. And like I said, the important piece is that they feel like they're in good hands. They know they're with a professional. We don't expect the individual to have the diagnosis. Yes, there's a lot of information online, friends, family, everybody becomes an expert if you, you know, try to talk to them. And people, I think, genuinely want to help. But as the expert in the room, I really feel the onus is on the psychologist, the professional, to kind of sort through that information and come up with, you know, if there is a diagnosis, come up with the, with the best explanation in terms of diagnostically, are we dealing with, you know, an anxiety disorder? Are we dealing with a depression, a mood disorder? Are we dealing with an addiction? Um, and all of those are important questions, but all of those are treatable. It's just this, you know, a different approach. The individual coming in really gets to just tell their story in their own words the best they can. Is it hard to build that connection through a screen? Because I mean, even Whitney and I, when we're doing our interviews, we find at least the video does help. But at first it was kind of hard to make that make it seem personable. We were using virtual and phone therapy even before, and that's part of making it accessible to somebody, you know, who lives far away and and can't get into the office easily. Or, you know, if you think about driving into the office, it takes time. Really, when you're seeing somebody face to face, you really pay a lot of attention to, you know, their their body language, their posture, their expression. Most of us you can get virtually. Uh, a lot of it you can get even on, you know, the phone. When I was practicing, we would try to meet in person at least once or twice before we went to virtual. During COVID, people didn't always have that opportunity. But my colleagues are reporting a lot of people want to come back to face-to-face. So I know that like in movies and TV, it's, it's always, you know, depicted as, you know, the bench and you're staring at the ceiling and you're writing down a notepad. But then there's also the you know, the aha moment that happens, so-called, you know, where all of a sudden everything makes sense and the answer is laid out in front of you because you just have this epiphany moment. Does that really happen or is it quite different in real life? (laughs) 
I mean, if we're if we're fortunate and we and we do our job well and we have a lot of experience, we definitely have some of those. The epiphany moment is when you explain to them that what you're describing to me makes a lot of sense. Let's take an example like panic disorder. So your heart rate goes up, their breathing might go up, um, they may, you know, start sweating, and it feels like it really happens out of the blue. And that is really quite frightening for people. They often present an emergency. Uh, they have a full cardiac workup, and they're told there's nothing wrong with their heart. So they leave the hospital not understanding what happens. And somebody says to them, you should get, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for panic disorder. And they leave thinking, so they're telling me it's in my head, but I feel my heart rate going up. So this doesn't make sense for them. But when they come in and we could say to them, let me ask you, have you started avoiding things that might increase your heart rate? And then they will say, yeah, I don't do that anymore because I'm afraid it's going to activate the exact same physiology. Your heart, it is racing, but it's racing because your fight or flight response got activated. You're picking up when it accelerates a little bit. And that's giving your brain the message that there's something wrong, which increases your heart rate. And then that's like an aha moment for people with panic disorder. It's highly treatable, but it's being able to understand that connection and not being left with this feeling like somebody didn't believe you and told you your heart is fine and that something is going on in your head. When your heart is actually racing. Does that make sense? 100%. That's such a good example. Oh my goodness. I never thought of it that way. The other thing that I want to quickly fill in the gap is we talk a lot about CBT. Um, Can you just break down a little bit for our listeners what exactly that is? So cognitive behavioral therapy is really um, helping people to understand how thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are all interrelated. And in order to make changes in our behaviors, which is where people typically want help when they come in, our thinking really drives a lot of how we feel and a lot of what we do. If somebody, for example, suffers with social anxiety, they might have the negative thought that, you know, if I attend an event, um, nobody will speak with me, I will look like an idiot, um, and it will be unbearable. So then they, they, they stop going out socially and they may become more and more isolated. So in order for them to be able to change some of that, we will help them think about things like maybe somebody will talk to me, right? What's the worst case scenario, the best case scenario? What's the realistic scenario? Yeah, some people might talk to me and others might not. Um, maybe I'll meet one interesting person and that's better than what I'll meet, you know, sitting at home, not going out at all. So we really try to help them learn Do not accept all of your thoughts as facts, but learn to really treat them as hypotheses to be tested. When it comes to doing things that are we're afraid of or out of our comfort zone, and obviously, yeah, you can feel your heart rate go up, things like that. Do you have any tips for kind of just getting through that and overcoming these fears? So, yeah, absolutely, right? The, the strategy there is to challenge yourself. So what we, what we do when we're helping somebody, let's say getting over a fear of driving, so what we do is establish, you know, a hierarchy. And at the bottom of the hierarchy are the items that are like a 20 to 30% s- 
subjective units of distress. So how high is your anxiety subjectively? Everybody's hierarchy would be unique. It's individual to the person. So no right or wrong, however anxious that makes you, that's the number for you. And then what's at the higher end of your hierarchy? So what's near to your 100, which might be driving on the 400 in rush hour? So the idea is to practice at one step until you get used to that and it no longer makes you anxious and then you move on to the next step. I love I love that and I love the examples that you gave too because really you, you gave an example that I know a lot of people struggle with driving. Driving can be terrifying. I know personally, you know, I have I'm fine driving on a country road, but as soon as it comes to like 400 serious highways, I get pretty nervous and it took me a long time to actually get my driver's license and pass because it was a nerve-wracking thing for me we hear people talk about therapy and we think oh you know that's for people who have really big issues or someone who's really struggling but you know therapy's not just for people who are really struggling with addiction or really serious mental health issues it's for anybody who you know even people who are dealing with a little bit of anxiety or any sort of fear I mean it can be useful there too and I think that's really good to recognize absolutely not everybody needs to see a clinical psychologist, right, in order to get help. Some people might get an assessment and say, you know what, that really helped me to understand what I needed to know. Can you give me some recommendations about some self-help material that, that I might benefit from? And if they can benefit from that, that's great because there's no shortage of people who need help. So sometimes the clinical psychologist you know, might be really important, but other times people might be able to benefit from different levels of care. Um, and that's okay. No, I do want to touch on, cause now you're, you know, you're talking about the difference between a clinical psychologist from, a, from maybe a therapist or I don't know, there's a million different ones. I don't know all the proper terms. So I want to open it to you. I want to say, can you explain to us the difference and the different levels? Cause of course we've been, Macy and I have just, just been saying therapy, therapists, just rolling it off our tongues, but I don't think we've been using the proper words because you are a clinical psychologist, right? Yeah. So clinical psychologist, highest level of training and education. You need to complete an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and then a PhD in clinical psychology. And then uh, there are psychiatrists. Now, psychiatrists are medical doctors, and they do a specialization in psychiatry. So that psychiatry is a specialized field of medicine that they would go into. So they're looking at similar problems like depression and addictions and anxiety disorders, and they will prescribe medications. Good psychiatrists definitely understand evidence-based treatment, and they, they do get some education and training in it, but the majority is, is in medicine and in medications that will help. Other professionals who can uh, deliver therapy, you could have nurses who do therapy, a uh, different level of training and education, social workers, therapists like psychotherapists. Now, in Ontario, there is a college of psychotherapists. Uh, their level of training and education is much less. Their requirements are much different. Um, but they do have requirements and they are registered. In British Columbia, for example, it's not regulated. Uh, anybody could really technically hang a shingle and call themselves a psychotherapist that's the frightening thing. So it's really a very important question. You know, when you're seeing somebody, you want to ask them, what are their credentials? What is their experience? And what is their experience and, and training 
in the uh, area that you're going to be helping them with. Stick around. Next up on Power and Heels. And there could be an exceptional team, but we couldn't prevent people from uh, making that choice. And it was always difficult and something you don't forget and you, you, you learn from that. You talked a lot about, obviously, some of the rewarding moments, and I'm sure there has been lots throughout your career. But during your time working as a clinical psychologist, were there ever um, like moments where it was, I guess, you had to learn a super hard or important lesson? There are many, many lessons along the way. I mean, you know, I always believe and I really feel that you learn from every client you work with, right? Every person is different. Everyone has a unique history. And so it's constant learning. Um, I think the most difficult is uh, clients who took their own life. Um, as a clinical psychologist, I often worked with, you know, colleagues who are psychiatrists in the community or in the hospital, um, and there could be an exceptional team, but we couldn't prevent people from uh, making that choice, and it was always, I think, for myself, difficult and something you don't forget, and you you, you learn from that. You always remember the importance of, um, you know, checking in with every client, document, document, document in real time, because you never know when something like that will happen. Um, and even doing all of that won't, you know, we're, we're not able to prevent that. And you know, we need to remember that and we need to make sure that we have support and that's a heartbreaking kind of fact here that's just the way it goes unfortunately and then yeah you mentioned you know having a good support group around you is that one of the biggest um helping factors that you find you know to kind of help move through those difficult times absolutely so you know as a clinical psychologist i provided a lot of supervision to students and that's incredibly rewarding work and uh, for many, many years at, uh, at our practice, you know, we worked as a strong group of, you know, professionals, psychologists, uh, friends from graduate school, students, and people were uh, there for each other over those years. And so I had many of my associates give me a call, uh, want to meet up, whether it was you know, over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, whatever, you know, to discuss difficult, challenging situations um, or, or losses. It was really such a gift to really be able to work with some of my best friends and, you know, world-class professionals. I feel like that's a lesson that can be applied to most people. You know, if you're going through a stressful time or, or something is bothering you or you're feeling anxious, even just the simplest of things that a group of people around you to help support you and people that you can talk to might just be one of the best things you can do. I agree. I think, I think just not holding it in and not, not taking it on yourself, you know, kind of that idea of, you know, if you have a problem and you share it with somebody, it's kind of half, right? It's, it's, you know, it's dispersed. And so it's easier if you have a joy and you share it with somebody, it's double, right? So, you know, remembering that is really, really important. When we wrap up working with somebody, so let's say we've seen somebody for, for 12 sessions 
and now they're left to go on their own and apply the strategies they've learned, I always make a point of telling people that symptoms will wax and wane. And if things, you know, become stressful for somebody again and their symptoms come up, it's not a failure to reach out to your psychologist again and say, hey, I'm having a few symptoms here. Um, you know, can I check in with you? And I would always consider that a win, that reaching out to your professional to get a bit of uh, support when you need it is absolutely the right thing to do. It's an important thing to do. That's a win. So never hesitate to do that. If we take our cars in for tune-ups, yes, we, we might need to get a refresher. And we care about our clients, but they care about us too, and they make that really clear. And, uh, you know, I don't want somebody to ever think that they're disappointing someone when they when they come in and say, hey, I could use, I could use a little tune-up. Hey, it's Macy and Whitney. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Power and Heels. Make sure to join the conversation and never miss a new episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Now, of course, there has been a lot of growth in the realm of therapy and mental health here in Canada, but I know that there is definitely still room for a lot of improvement. So just for, in your personal opinion, what do you think are the next steps to improving the industry? You know, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I think that we still need to focus on access. I think people need to make mental health a priority. Um, and I think that includes a couple of things. One, decreasing the stigma, right? If, if somebody has you know, a physical health disorder. Let's say somebody has diabetes. Nobody's judging them. They're like, okay, you have diabetes. Like, what can we do about it? But if somebody struggles with depression, they're often embarrassed to talk about it. And sometimes people seem to feel like it's somebody's fault. And I, you know, I said it before, but I'll say it again. In decades of doing this clinical work, I've never met somebody who wants to be depressed. And I've never met somebody with an anxiety disorder who wants to have anxiety disorders, you know, or have that presentation. So I think we need to focus on decreasing stigma and understanding that there are so many people who are struggling and we need to offer that help. We need to not judge people for that. Um, and then we need to really work on making it a priority. So we need to, you know, have funding. We need to have resources. When we hear about waiting lists. Um, I tried to help people recently access some help and they told me that they called numerous clinics and that every clinic had a waiting list. Uh, lobbying governments, they're like, we need access to funding, we need access to good care, um, we need to train uh, more professionals and we need to know and understand which professionals are needed for which level of care. Uh, so good evidence-based care supported by good research outcomes, that's what we need to well, it has been really, really awesome to talk to you. You shared some incredible stories, a lot of really great advice, but you've had a, a wonderful career and a really successful career and you've helped with a lot of people. If you you know look back and think about it all and think about all the work that you've done, are there any big pieces of advice or major tips that you want to share with our listeners? Thank you. I mean, that's a, it's a lovely opportunity to share that. I think that uh, what I tell people, so people do contact me, for advice, um, often career advice, education advice, letters of reference, and and uh, I'm happy, always happy to help people. And I really tell people, if you 
you know, if you find something that you're passionate about, you know, don't don't give it up. You know, pursue it. When I was pursuing my career in clinical psychology, because I loved helping people, I loved working with people, I wanted to continue. Um, that kind of work is incredibly rewarding. And uh, people said to me, you know, oh, nobody gets into clinical psychology. It's incredibly competitive. It's easier to get into med school or law school. But I love clinical psychology, and that's what I wanted to do. And then people would say things like, well, there are no jobs for clinical psychologists. And at the time, clinical psychologists worked in the hospital system, and there weren't. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of hospital jobs, but right now a lot of people work in their own private practices. So you can make your own jobs, which, which I did. But the main thing is pursue your passion, stay with it, live your values. If helping people is your goal, uh, some people said, you know, you're intelligent. If you go into law, you'll make more money. So maybe, you know, that's fine. <laughs> it's not about making money. If that's not your ultimate goal in the world then uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it uh, at all. So if, if you find something you're passionate about, there are many ways to help people. Clinical psychology is one way, um, but there are other ways, and don't be shy to pursue it. Don't be shy to reach out to people, you know, who are passionate about the things you're passionate about because generally they should want to help you with that and, and be available for that. So, you know, really just that. Uh, Live your passion, live your, live your values, and be consistent with that. And uh, that'll bring you so much fulfillment and big rewards in your life. Well, that was awesome. Thank you so much for that advice and for joining us. Really appreciate it. <laughs>